No mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. This month on the podcast, we return to Sir Peter Sharple's address at the 2015 Sir John Graham Lecture. This annual lecture is the pinnacle event of our calendar. It allows us to invite speakers with international and local significance to share from their expertise and their experience, and it's just a great time. Sir Peter is best known to most people as a co-founder of the Māori Party and for his work as the Minister of Māori Affairs. But his experience as an academic, a public servant and a leader spans so much more than just his years in politics. We invited Sir Peter Sharples to speak at a time when the Maxim staff and board were looking to engage in a deeper conversation about New Zealand's history in order to bring context to the challenges that we face as a nation, particularly around our work in research and policy. In this lecture, he begins from his early years, sharing stories from his life, speaking to his whakapapa, and moving on to his role in the Māori Renaissance, where he worked to establish schools that were founded with the goal of seeing the re-establishment of te reo Māori as a source of mana and belonging for Māori people all throughout New Zealand. I'll never forget the challenge he laid down to us as an audience that night, and it's one that's just as relevant now as it was then. I hope you enjoy the listen. Kia noho tahi ai tātou i roti i te whare nei. Mā kū e tahi kōrero ki a koutou, mā tātou e whakawhiti-whiti kōrero, ngā pātai, mērā tū āhuatanga e pirangi a koutou. Sir Graham, te nā koe. Nā tau, tau ira, i kō kiri hia te huarahi, tēne ka tūau ka whaiatū i a koe. I am pleased to be following something erected in your name from your leadership that you have done in your education field and, of course, black. <laughs> Tonight's... Uh, trying to be honest with you. Clearly you trust me, that's why you're here and you've paid bucks to come here and be with me. So I know you do trust me. Now I want you to understand me. Perhaps this first page or two. The year was, uh, the year was 1960. It was my final year at Te Aute Māori Boys College. It was on a Friday afternoon when I received a letter from my mother. My mother often wrote to me at college. It was a boarding school, but this letter was different to all previous letters. I opened the letter and I gazed down at the words. The tears rolled down my face. Her beautiful writing was still the same. The sentiments were the same. But the letter was written in Māori. This was the first time my mother ever communicated to me in our native language, the language of my ancestors. Just let me explain. In our village, Taupo, all our Māori parents spoke to each other only in Māori, their mother tongue, but spoke to us kids in English with a bit of a Māori accent, a big Māori accent, actually. Go to school, different English. My mother and thousands of mothers and fathers were physically punished and strapped for speaking Māori in the school grounds during the 1920s, 30s and 40s. Along with the Tohunga Suppression Act, 
1908, and other colonizing implements, te reo Māori was relegated to yesterday's language. My mother had heard me speaking Māori during my Tautia years, but this was the first time that she broke the shackles of colonization and celebrated my journey in te reo Māori. It was an empowering moment for me. It became a source of my drive and commitment to fight to restore my mother's stolen language and culture as a valid and appropriate culture for New Zealand Aotearoa. You see, it's very hard for me to explain to you what it is uh, like for people to have their language and culture branded illegal and unacceptable by government decree and by practice. Land alienation together with deliberate dismantling of tribal structure saw that it the introduction of new forms of authority and behaviour, colonisation destroyed the mana and authority of Māori, iwi, hapu and whānau, destroyed their very genre de vie. To explain when a people's culture and language are suppressed, it serves to deny, it serves to deny the validity of their history in that society. It is my conclusion here that this denial is still firmly in place today. In 1977, my role as a CEO of Race Relations Conciliators Office, I visited Britain to look at the affirmative action programs there, amongst the Pakistani and Jamaican immigrants in London. I'd never been to London before then, but I was totally astonished at how much I knew. I knew the names of many London streets. I knew history around Westminster Abbey, the Tower Bridge, Buckingham Palace. I knew the historical deeds of Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh and others, the monuments of them. Here I was at the Antipodes of New Zealand for the first time, and yet I was so familiar with the sites, the monuments, the history and the culture of this side of the globe, which is okay. But it suddenly struck me the unfairness of it all. I know about this place and this Pākehā history on this side of the world. But back in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pākehā people don't know about my history of Te Whatuyāpiti, of Te Kikiri o Te Rangi, great war chiefs in my denied tribal history of Ngāti Kahungun. The colonisation of New Zealand has ensured that the people of this country do not learn Tangata Whenua history. I have made my remarks very personal tonight, and I'll put my credibility on the line because I know you have trusted me and you've come here tonight to be with me. In my maiden speech in Parliament in 2005, I cited portions of my own genealogy or whakapapa as an example of Māori history in New Zealand prior to colonisation. In repeating some of these events to you now, I do so on behalf of all Māori, even although it is my whakapapa, to recognise the 1,000-year bond between Māori and these islands. So I ask the question to you, why do you accept the world's history and not our own? The Spanish Inquisition, the French Revolution, the Battle of Waterloo, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. We know about these things. We know about these people. So what of Toi Kairako? of Rauru, of my history, my New Zealandness, 
my missing thousand years. Toi Kairako crossed the Pacific and came to New Zealand. And at that same time, Eric the Red was expelled from Iceland and voyaged to colonize Greenland. Toi Kairako is my ancestor. He lives still in me. His history, his genealogy is my history, my genealogy, my bonding to these islands of Aotearoa. Toi's son was Rauru. His son was Fatunga, And from Fatunga came Tahatiti. Tahatiti came Uenuku. And at this time of Uenuku, this time in history, William of Normandy conquered England and became King William I. All in our books. From Uenuku came Ruatapu. From Ruatapu came Rakaiora. From Rakaiora, Tamakitehau. And these are my ancestors, Tangata Whenua. And this ancestor, Tamaki Tehau, lived at the time of the great military leader, Genghis Khan, who established the Mongol Empire, uniting almost all of Asia, Euro-Asia. And my genealogy descends to Tamaki Tera, Tamaki Matang. And now, at this time, the Magna Carta is signed on the other side of the world. I continue to Tamaki Reirea my Hawaii, Tikahuarero, Pitorere, Tangi Maika, Toto, to Tamate Ariki Nui. Tamate Ariki Nui brought the tapu canoe of Taki Timu across the Pacific. He is the eponymous ancestor of all descendants of the Taki Timu Waka. Taki Timu Waka, Taki Timu Canoe, my canoe. At this time of the arrival of the canoe, history records the crusade of Joan of Arc in France who was burnt at the stake, aged 19 years. From Tamate Arikinui came Rongo Kako and then Tamate Pokai Whenua, and his son was Kahungunu. Kahungunu was the founding ancestor of my tribe, Ngati Kahungunu, of me, Peter Sharples. Then came Kahukuranui, Kahukuranui, Rakai Hikuroa from Rakai Hikuroa Taraya. And it was Taraya who led the migration of Ngati Kahungunu people south from Wairoa into the Napier-Hastings area. And at this time, Columbus stumbled across America. And I mean stumbled. From Taraya came Terangi Taumaha and his daughter Tehuhuti, who also, like Hinemo, swam across a lake. Man, what they do for me. <laughs> and married that war chief, Te Whatiapiti. He was a great war chief. He had red hair. How about that? I might have had red hair. These two are my eponymous ancestors of the sub-tribe Te Whatuyapiti of the tribe Kahungunu of the Wakataki Timu. So they occupied the area of Hastings and Central Hooks Bay. This is my history. This is my life, my family. These ancestors live in me. I am their direct descendant. In Maori culture, values, I am them and they are me. Māoris believe this stuff. Then came te wā wāhanga, te rangi kawhiua, te mana wākawa, te rangi This is my whakapapa. When we go to Tangis, we recite our whakapapa. Now at this time of rangi koianake, at this time, Cromwell overthrows the British monarchy and declares a republic in England. Te rangi is the ancestor of the sub-tribe Ngāti rangi of Te Hope. Also, my grandson carries his name. 
his mana, and his spirit. His eldest son was Kikiri Oterangi, another warrior, another famous war chief and stuff who crossed the ranges and conquered a few paths and stuff. Also another redhead. He led many successful forays to avenge the deaths of his two grandfathers, Terehunga and Manawakonga. He is the eponymous ancestor of our sub-tribe, Ngaite Kikiri Oterangi. So you have sub-tribes all the way down. Ngaite Kikiri Oterangi named after him. And the genealogy continues. And from Te Kikiri Oterangi came Kanohi Tuhanga. And this ancestor's name, Mana, was, invest, was vested in my first great-grandson. I got two great-grandsons. But he's like two and if I would have brought him here, he would have destroyed this place. <laughs> from Kanohituhanga comes Te Aroatua. From Te Aroatua, Hori Nienea. Hori Nienea's son was Paura, Kopakau Nienea. Paura was my grandfather, and his name and his spirit are carried by my son. And my son also lived, Paura. From Paura came, the original Paura came, my mother Ruiha, and then me. This is my history. This is tangata whenua. But apart from talking history of Māori, I have deliberately personalised it to show you that to Māori it is a living history. And as a living history, I want you to understand, whakapapa, we're one of the few cultures in the world that still recite our whakapapa back to 40 or 50 generations and so on. We do it at tangis, we do it when we get together. It is bonding, it is about events, it's about people, it's about history and everything. It is about belonging to the land. We grew the land with the mountain, with the rocks. Why else does Tariana Turia prayed around saying, I am the river and the river is me? I said, oh, you better clean up your river. Eh? <laughs> Insult, yeah, exactly. She gave me the appropriate slap. But that's is it. That is what it is like to be Maori. It's not just belonging to a kid and having a snotty nose. It's much more to being a Maori kid than that. These kids are brought up on that. Today, if you go to any Maori home, the TV will be on some kapahaka program. Well, one of the TVs. <laughs> and the two-year-old will be standing in front of it going like this, singing the actual words, but not yet able to speak properly. Because they recognize, and we recognize, that that is what it is to be a Maori child. The Whakapapa is a link with one's own history. Past history, current happenings history, and our future. I don't know if you can really understand this, bit, this next bit. You become part of a continuum and you accept that you're part of that continuum. You are an integral part of now and the past, but you're also part of the future through your children, your grandchildren, and those still to come. I remember a farmer saying to me, oh, I'm from Christchurch up in the hills, and uh, we've been on that farm for four generations. I reckon we know just as well as the Maori what it's like, eh? And in a sense, he was correct. His father worked that land. His father's father worked that land, and his father's father started that farm on that land. And so his whakapapa only four generations, but it is a similar sort of feeling that you are one with the place. 
but you are connected to that genealogy that comes down and goes on. So it's all embracing. So you become part of, of the forever. So, you know, I just feel and I know that I am not of today. I'm not just of the last 300 years or the last thousand. I began here. I am Hawaii, I'm Aotearoa, I am New Zealand, I am Maori nationhood, I am here forever. And in that way, I can never die. I firmly believe that a teaching knowledge of our history, every school district in the community would do wonders to increase the local community relations and begin to heal many of the wounds of colonization period. I went to a school and I said, uh, in Hawke's Bay too, said, um, kids go down the marae. said, oh, yep. When's the last time they went? Oh, three years ago. Really? So who's the local chief? Oh, I don't know who's the chief, but we usually go to Papa Brown. I said, well, is Papa Brown the local leader? I don't know, really. Um, and so it went on. I thought, do the kids talk Māori? Was there any Māori at the school? Or No, no, no. We, we have one curriculum here, and we follow that curriculum through. I said, uh, are the kids, uh, Māori kids, uh, said, a little bit slow on some of the things? Yeah, they're in the, they're, you know, we have to work hard on them. I said, well, don't you think if you had their parents here and the local chief, and the kids went to the marae, the whole school and stuff, that they might feel more involved and part of their life, their current history and stuff, and they might improve and own the kaupapa and learn better and so on, and vice versa. You might learn a little bit about the local history and stuff like this. So I devoted a lot of my time at my last years at um, Parliament to create a curriculum. So despite the cultural resurgence and drive to teach Māori language at all levels of formal education, the language is still not safe. Colonisation owes Māori greater support to promote and encourage the teaching and spread of Māori language today. Māori have created Māori language immersion institutions at all levels, preschool, primary, secondary and tertiary, and all have done so initially from their own efforts outside of the formal programs, but continually lobbying, continual lobbying has resulted in government legislation formalising provision of these educational options. It's always been from outside, it's always been a fight. It's always been by pulling out of the system and just doing it by yourself with no money that we have forced these changes. I know. So when we built the first Kurakaupapa Māori at Hawaii Waititi Marae in West Auckland, we got death threats because, remember, apartheid was still alive down the line and people were con comparing this to apartheid. And so 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone would ring and we, when your phone rings at 2 a.m., you think it's a tangi, someone's passed away because you get notified straight away. People don't wait. Anyway, it's a change to have a death threat instead. <laughs> the language is still not safe and... We have a role to play, and that's why we went outside, created Kohanga Reo, Kohanga Nest, Reo language. And that's what they were, very simple concepts. And at that meeting, the leaders of Maoritim came to Wellington, and we had these meetings in Parliament in a recess period. And it was a very simple concept. We get all the preschool kids, forget about the others, they're gone. 
We can't start teaching bits and pieces, but if we have a start with two, three, four-year-olds, then we can bring them through as a people. And all you need to do is bring them, find some food, find a place, a room, put a queer or old lady or old man who speaks Maori and can look after kids, put them in a room, shut the door. <laughs> shut the door on Monday and open it on Friday. <laughs> and they come out speaking Maori. <laughs> oh, we were so excited. What a brilliant, brilliant program. God. So we went back to our tribal areas. And my tribe, Ngāti Kahunganu, had te okanga, and uh, we tatau huata, Auntie Bunty, Auntie Lulu, from that hui came back and said, Ngāti Kahunganu, Ngārohāre te reo. Language is down the tubes. Kohanga reo is the way. Do it. And they did it. Queen Tiatairangi Kahu went back to Waikato with her leaders. Waikato. The James Henare and that lot. Went up north without pigeons. <laughs> okay. They went up north and they said, Tai Tokarau, Anei Tuhurahi Motato, do it. Spotswood in Taranaki, South Island, everywhere, Kohanga sprang up. They sprang up in cow sheds, car sheds, cow sheds. They sprang up in schoolrooms, garages. They sprang up in every place they could find a room. And people bought food and looked for money to pay the tutor, which we did not have, and so on. It took off, and like all things that work, the government said, why didn't you ask us? We would have helped this. <laughs> so we got some money for it, and looks what's happened now. It's a big fight in that big trust, fighting over who's doing what. So from there, kids went to school, and they spoke Māori, and the other kids laughed, and they stopped speaking Māori. And there was this particular kid that I really, because we all worked in there, I really, really thought he was number one student, and um, he didn't speak much to me when he came, whenever I saw him. And then he stopped talking Māori to me, and then he looked like he didn't even like me. And I thought, I was his favourite papa, what, what's wrong with him? And then the penny dropped. We had taught this child how the world wasn't. We have told him the world is about having a prayer when you arrive. The world is about morning talks. The world is a lot of singing. The world is about sharing your food. All the things we did in Kohanga, about manaki, about respect. And when visitors come, you stop your playing and we welcome the new visitor and then we carry on. We share our food. We sleep together in the afternoon in the kohanga. But they didn't find that there. So we had, in fact, deceived these children, prepared them for a world that wasn't. So that's what made us build the first kura kaupapa at Hawaii Waititi Marae, then five others, and so on and so forth. I'll tell you how tricky it gets. Government saw us building these schools. They saw us funding it ourselves. And they had to take us on board. It was the same time as tomorrow's schools. So they listed us as one of tomorrow's schools' options. And after tomorrow's schools took place, they worked out that they will fund schools. And they'll begin by funding five schools. So they invited six schools, the six that were actually trying to operate, to Wellington, to a meeting, 
and told them, good news is we're going to fund you from now on. But we're only going to fund five, so you have a meeting and work out which five. We couldn't believe it. The six, they invited the six, but they're going to fund five. Who would do that? Well, they did it. I'll tell you what happened, because Kaupapa Māori had started in those schools and it took place. Immediately, Kathy Jews stood up. Ruamata is one of the older schools. We have already got our funds ready for next year. We will stand down. You five have the money. And someone else stood up and said, no, that's not fair because we need that model out there, so we will stand down. And then Terito stood up and said, they will stand down. I thought, oh, shucks, we're the matua school, we're the bosses, I better stand down. <laughs> so I stood up and said, no, no, we'll stand down. They said, no, you're the leading school. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's what they were. <laughs> but do you know what happened? They all decided that two of us would share our money with a third school that would have no money. So we all got money, five schools, and the one that got left out shared their money with two of the other schools. So we had two-thirds each, I think that's right, and, uh, and we survived. The kaupapa of Māori was already working, even at that stage and so on. We're not out of the woods with te reo Māori. My wife's name is Arapira. Yet people insist on calling her Arapira. Sounds like a dam. I mean, a simple name like Tāmaki, Auckland, Tāmaki. It's not Tamaki. I can forgive you if you can't pronounce Tūranga or Moana, but please don't call it what they call it, Trangamon. How Tūranga Moana became Trangamon, I have no idea, but it did. Doesn't it seriously show that there's a lack of respect in New Zealand for Māori language, which we wear as a lack of respect for the whole cultural thing? And unless there is a change, nothing's going to happen. Now, we all know about that Kapiti College boy and the speech he made to his class, and the teacher put it on Facebook, and it's gone viral, and he's been on the news of the main stations of TV, and he's been on the BBC, and people in New Zealand are liking it on their Facebook and thinks, good on you, boy. And here I am thinking... Good on you, boy. Why the hell didn't they listen to us? Why did it take a Pākehā child to make people think about it? When he said the very things that Māori are saying. You know, that's part of colonisation. It leaves a, you're not that important. Your culture's not that important. Leaves that sort of veil over things that we do and so on. I bet if there was a Māori way of kicking goals that never missed, oh, we'd, be, we'd be heroes. I'm not talking about soccer either. People, I just wanted to show you what it is like, how we hurt sometimes, how brave my mother was to step outside of what she had believed because of her upbringing that Māori was bad, Māori language was bad, and stand up and say, blow it, Māori is good, and use her Māori for me and not just for themselves and so on like that. So now we have an explosion amongst Māori of culture and so on, but there's still that bridge, that gap, if you like, between society accepting it and not. I had a very, very good friend, one of the first air hostess for NAC, she's a very old lady now, Joy Hannah, who 
used to kick around with us guys. She was older than us. She was my landlady at one stage. She honestly tried to say Papa Toi Toi and Otahu instead of Arahu. And she learned to say them properly. But she went to tennis on Wednesdays. And her mates laughed at her so much and rubbished her, she lost her confidence. And she went back to Arahu, Papa Toi. Real sad. She was really trying to make an effort but that was her society. So maybe I'm putting that to you all here tonight. What is your role? Greg Miller is a New Zealand uh, leader of the toll group in New Zealand. He has an app called Hika, H-I-K-A, and it is all about methods of pronouncing, easy ways to pronounce Māori words. I invite you to look it up tomorrow or late tonight. What is important here today is that you accept you trust me, you can. You accept what I say as a Maori viewpoint and a Maori description of living from emerging of colonization. We're still colonized ourselves. We talk about things in a different way now. We get a good idea and we do this and do this and then suddenly we get a knock and we act colonized and stuff like this. As for the rest of New Zealand, they have not moved on attitudes towards a lot of Māoris. We are the guys that punch everybody up and do that sort of stuff, regardless of how it came to pass. I remember I got involved with the gangs uh, back in the 70s when I was in race relations, and because I really was spoiling my record of good race relations uh, in the office, and I thought, I'd better tackle the gangs then. So I went along to this gang leader. This was the worst part for Auckland, 70s. They were killing each other. They were shooting each other. And I went to one gang leader and I said, I want you to stop that um, shooting and stuff. And he said, fuck off. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I found out his real leader was in jail. So I'd done quite a bit of work in jail so I could get in there easy. So I got in to see this guy and I said, you've got to stop killing each other. You know, it's not good for Maori to be killing Maori. And Stuff like that. And they said, who gives a shit? He said, this is where we're placed. This is our territory. This is our patch. And I said, don't you care about your people? What people? Well, about your queen, Maori queen. What queen? I got no queen. And that's how it was. And so I said, what will make you take me seriously? I was scared shitless, man. And I was me in the cell and him and his lieutenant, his um, sergeant of arms. And he said, uh, you get so-and-so in here, who was one of the leaders of Black Power in Wellington, and then I'll respect you and we'll have a listen to what you want to do. So I did. Somehow I got him in there and the prison trusted me. I got him in to the one cell. Without a word of a lie, it was like watching two generals talk to each other. Ah, oh, kia ora, Wen. You're doing, getting pretty strong now. And he said, oh, you've got a new territory. I said, you've got Wairoa now? He said, yeah, but you're still in Napier, Hastings. That's how they were talking like this. And I said, well, so I'd really like you guys to work together instead of fighting in that. From that meeting, I gained their respect. I said, you know, what about the Queen and Park and this war? When he got out, I joined them and me and Ross Della. Ross Della was a policeman, very successful senior policeman. He worked leading the raid squad up north in Auckland and I 
was sort of called on for the gang side. So we went to things where people were killed, identified bodies and stuff like this, and tried to get them to pull out and so on. So I was arrested twice. I, I knew the police that arrested me. They knew I wasn't a gang member. But because I was there rounding them up and stuff, they pushed me into the cell, locked the door. Cheeky buggers. <laughs> I was so angry. I said, gee, I'm trying to be a good guy here, and you buggers have locked me up, you know? I work with this gang, and found out that if I could, I thought, if I could get them some employment, doing something, they might change. So the Black Power said, you bring Karapukatapu up here, he's the head of Māori Affairs, and we'll meet him in the Otahuhu gym. So 100 Black Power met Karapukatapu and me in the Otahuhu College gym. And they said, you, to Karap, you got all the money for Marys. We live in Otahu, Odahu. We live in Odahu. We are the scum of the earth, but we work here. We, no, we live here. We drink here. We fight here. We want to work here. We can't go any lower than we are now. Give us a job. Give us a job, a chance to do something. And so he left. And similarly out in West Auckland. So we, we had work schemes in those days. So we set up a work scheme, and in the end... We had 100 headhunters working out in the parks out in West Auckland. And we had all those little suburbs, uh, boroughs and stuff in those days. And we had uh, Black Power beautifying the beach, beautifying Black Power, uh, the sea edges and the parks and stuff like that. And you know what? They stopped killing each other. They just stopped killing each other. But then they started to accumulate wealth. Started to get into real crime. <laughs> they got headquarters and furnished them and stuff like this, you know. So they're not dumb anyway. But it just shows what happens, and this happened all over the world with gangs and stuff. Now we read in the prisons that they're having gang fights and real bad and stuff because people in there don't know how to handle and work with them. I have not yet met the gang member that when you've talked to them and gone through a whole lot of stuff that will not adhere to Kopapa at the end of the day after talking and having the options spelt out to them. We even built a prison called Whare Oranga Ake. There's two of them for people to go and be rehabilitated by the iwi into their own homes, into their victims' face, into all these things, so that when they actually finish their sentence, they've learned the skills of rehabilitation and family, and love. It's a practical thing, it's a simple thing. And that's why Sam has spent his whole life working with these guys. They are just so ordinary, but they're tied up in this culture. So the answer is not to tell them you're bad, drop your culture. The answer is to give them the opportunity to express themselves in other different ways. I'm miles away from what I was going to say. I actually am just calling, but... I really want to hear what you have to say because our people out there are working hard for a place in the sun. Our tribes have reconstituted themselves. And you know what did that? Kohangareo. Because we got such a shock at this idea we can save our language. The leaders went home to their areas, like I said, and said, do kohanga. And we listened to them. Suddenly they got restored mana. Government deliberately dismantled tribes so they could take land. And that was the big plot of colonization, is to acquire the land, new settlements, 
new government, new way of life for a new country. But the casualties was Maori culture, Maori whakapapa genealogies, tribalism, and stuff like this. We reignited it through Kohanga Reo, and so suddenly they became stronger and got listened to once again. So our tribal leaders got their mana back, and they've worked hard to be leaders. So now you have this opposition between those Maori groups which are constituted through articles like Maori Council, Maori Welfare League, and things like this, are in one way in conflict with the tribal groups, which includes everybody at some level or other, and so on. But we're working through that big time. The Maori economy, when I went into Parliament, was worth $14.6 billion. That's economy of Maori groups. I want to publicly acknowledge successive governments of New Zealand for the Treaty Settlement Programme. It is a wonderful thing. It is not a lucky dip rubbish. It is, in fact, 1% of what was taken off the tribes and 1% for the grievances caused by them by the killings during colonisation. What it has amounted to, though, is a pocket full of millions, some small, some big, to allow that tribe to kickstart uh, an economy or something. And it's just exploded, just like Kohanga, except they're not in one room trying to... And so Māori tribal leaders have earned their mana, if you like, and have grown their economy. I look at uh, Indian reservations in America and Canada, and there's still signs up saying Sitting Bull had it all wrong and stuff like this. Big signs. The unfortunate Sitting Bull, da-da-da-da-da. And I said to the people, pull that bloody sign down. I'm going to do it in the morning. Or oh, please don't do it. They'll cut off our allowance or something or other. So, you know, we have come a long way in this country compared to what has happened in, in a lot of other countries that I go to. So I'd like to acknowledge successive governments for that practice. And it's going very well. And our economy was worth $14.6 when I went in. So as soon as I got, uh, became a minister... We call a economic summit. The usual way you do it with Māoris, you invite 80 people to Wellington and 120 come. And then you sort out your priorities and you lay down a, a, a kaupapa, a way, a way forward, and so on. And at the end was a task force we set up. And that task force, one of the things they did was to review the Māori economy. And it suddenly revealed that it wasn't worth 14.6. It was worth... $37.9 billion, more than double that. Now, that was uh, five years ago. Now, it is worth $43.7 billion. So it's growing. Māori are learning to do stuff uh, on the international stage as well. So, so there's honey contracts. There's all sorts of uh, trading going on throughout the world. So it's good news. And we're on the up. But we won't get quite there unless there is a realisation by the predominant culture, which is Pākehā, that Māori are your people too. That this is part of our togetherness. And it's more than just saying hello. It's about doing what people, some people that I know personally in this room do. Encourage mixing. I want to tell you just this one little story. When I applied for the Race Relations Act, CEO... I thought, gee, that's a good job for me, man. I'm pretty cool with people. Then I thought, nah, I hate Indians. 
Oh, I can't take that job. Because they lie. They tell lies. Therefore, they probably steal. What happened was, as a student, I went overseas to do field work. This was my first trip overseas. So we had a night in Nandi, and in Nandi I was to buy all my equipment. So every shop I went into and I asked for, say, film, and they said 17 and 6 in those days. 17 and 6. I said, wow, it's dear. No, thanks. I'll go next door. And they go, 15. But you said 17 and 6. Well, for you, 15. Why for me, 15? <laughs> oh, we like you. You're brown like us, 15. No, no, thanks. 13. 13. You're scaring me. You're lying. Why did you say 17 when I came in? And I just couldn't abide that, and I walked out. Ha, huh, went next door, same story. They're all liars. And I did, I learned, Indians are liars. <laughs> so I went and bought my stuff, and I went on my field work as a young student. Got an A pass, and confirmation that Indians lie, and came back to New Zealand. So when the job came up, I thought, God, those Indians lie though. Can't apply for this job. And I told my mates, they said, Oh, don't be stupid. You get you get used to them. <laughs> like leave them lying. And I said, nah, I'm gonna make an effort. So I went to our shop in Tiaratu, now called Peninsula. And uh, <laughs> I still like North. Yeah. North. Anyway, I went into the shop and it was an Indian shop that did all the green grocers. And I said to him, um, I'd like to place an order. Will you deliver it to my house? Can you? Yes, yes. Four o'clock this afternoon? Yep. So, okay, bring it. And I went around there and I waited at four o'clock, put the kettle on and invited him in and forced myself to have a cup of tea with this liar. He lied pretty good because we got on pretty well in there. You know? <laughs> a week later, I was walking up Two, and I passed his shop and he called out me, Mr. Shuffle, would you come in please? So I went into his shop and he had lined up his whole family, wife, Abel, Baker, Charlie, you know, all down to the little baby and he introduced me to him and as his new friend, his new Maori friend who invited me into his house and we'd like to invite you, Mr. Shuffle, into our house and uh, meet us and stuff. So I accepted and I got over my hang-up, felt so stupid. But he explained the barter system. It's been all around the world, and they do it everywhere. And so <laughs> <laughs> I felt a real dick, man. <laughs> so I learned that they were just people like us. But one day I was invited to a service, church service, and it was about love. For me to talk about love, what is love, and stuff like this. So I get there, and I'm talking away about love, and about people and races coming together. And I told that story, how I had this hang-up and what I did about it. And this Indian lady got up. This is like 10 years later. She said, this story is true. I am Mrs. So-and-so, was the wife of the <laughs> And here's my daughter, whatever, whatever. And she had things, so I couldn't believe it. I thought, she pays not to lie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And she shook my hand and she was crying and just happy, those memories of that time. I asked the husband and she said, oh, he died uh, two years ago. But it just shows you sometimes you go through life with hang-ups about other races and stereotypes of people and you don't need to. You really don't need to. You can get rid of that rubbish. Own it and then drop it. 
my main talk was about the economy. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get anyone next year, so John, I'll, I'll be around. I'll be around. <laughs> but really, people, it is about us. It's about you, really. It's about you thinking about what I've said. And is there a space in your life, in your head, in your understanding to actually take a look at this thing about Māori coming out of colonisation? Because we've still got a lot of hang-ups because of the way we've been treated and we still think we're victims. And this is what I've fought against. Me and Marama, who's replaced me in Parliament as an MP, to fight against just being victims. We're not victims anymore. We are heroes. We are really intelligent, capable leaders. And that's what we should be doing. And fix up poverty. I'm not saying there's no poverty. There is. We've got to deal to that. But we're not victims. We are leaders. And that's the idea I want to get across. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to keep up with the rest of Maxim Institute's work, including our research and the blogs that we write every week, please feel free to head along to our website, maxim.org.nz, where you can also sign up for our monthly e-newsletter called Forum. You'll just find a sign-up form on the website. Otherwise, you can also head along to the uh, full catalogue of our Flint and Steel magazines, which is online at flintandsteelmag.com. Otherwise, make sure you've subscribed or liked uh, Maximus Institute podcasts on whatever platform you're listening to this on, and you'll get a notification the next time we drop another podcast onto your feed. From all of us here on the Maximus Institute team, matewa, goodbye for now. <laughs>